Welcome to the busy Latter-day Saint, where righteous desires and living life come together. Here, members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints discuss their challenges and successes in studying the scriptures. I'm your host, Richard Bernard. Before we hear from our guest, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast and leave comments. This will help the podcast in reaching a larger audience. Also, invite your friends to listen. Information on how to reach me and a link to my website are in the show notes. The music for this program is by Marvin Goldstein and used with his permission. And now, today's interview. Rebecca, welcome. How are you doing today? Quite well, thank you. Good. And you're up in the same state as I am here in Utah, and we're enjoying some great weather. It is. It's gorgeous. I went for I went for a walk this morning, and I had to come back a little bit earlier because it was colder than I thought it was, and I didn't take my coat. <laughs> <laughs> the sunshine is deceptive. Yeah, you can tell I'm not a native um, Utahan, where they walk around in t-shirts and shorts when it's 30 degrees. Now, are, uh, were, you, were, you, were you raised here in Utah, or where are you from? I, I was born and raised here, um, born at LDS Hospital up in Salt Lake, lived in East Mill Creek most of my life, uh, went to the University of Utah for a couple of years, um, and then... Uh, transferred down to BYU for a, a summer school class and met a cute engineer, and that was the end of Utah for 40 years. We moved to the Midwest, lived in Michigan and Ohio. Randy worked for Ford Motor Company. So that's where most of my uh, adult life was spent in the Midwest. Oh, okay, so you're well acquainted with cold weather. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the yeah, snow. The, and no, The wind and those, chill factors uh, with the wind coming off of Lake Erie, uh, it was bitter. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I've i been to um, Rochester, New York a few times uh, in the wintertime. And, boy, that wind blows off the lake, and it, it is cold. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself. You already have about where you've been, but a little bit more about yourself. Huh, well... Um, I loved to read as a kid uh, and had a dad who loved reading. And so he would recommend books to me. So at the age of 11, I started reading um, novels written by Michener, including uh, Hawaii and The Source. Um, And The Source was a fascinating book that Um, told the story of an archaeological dig in Israel with a Muslim, a Christian, and a Jewish uh, archaeologist team. And they told the story of each object they found through the dig and did a sweeping history of Israel from prehistoric times on down to the current day. And that really caught my interest in um, enjoying reading history. Uh, So that is kind of where my love of all things biblical started. Um, I did have one other experience as a child that was formative. I had a speech impediment And so they had me going to the speech therapist at school. 
And she contacted my parents and said, I can't help her enough. You need to hire someone uh, for her to take lessons. So I began taking elocution lessons from uh, uh, a wonderful teacher in East Mill Creek. And she taught me to speak correctly by memorizing scripture. And way back then we had, we didn't have copies of the Book of Mormon or the Bible. You just had a New Testament that you got in primary. And she would mark up the text of the New Testament verses that she wanted me to memorize. So at six and seven and eight years of age, I was memorizing scripture and learned how to read the biblical text with understanding. And um, so something that could have been quite a weakness, the inability to communicate well, <clears throat> actually became a strength. And um, by the time I was in high school, I realized there were a lot of questions that I had that were not being answered in my Sunday school classes or at seminary. And so I started to read other things, went to the library at the seminary building at Skyline, checked out books, and just started reading. So my interest in church, in history, in textual understanding goes way back. Um, but as I mentioned, I, I met uh, my husband, Randy, uh, my freshman, just after my freshman year of college. And my intent had been, at the U, I had been uh, doing artificial organs research with the Dr. Andrade and helped to make some of the prototypes of the Jarvik hearts that were later planted into um, Barney Clark for the first heart transplant. It was a heady place to be at the engineering building there. Um, but marrying and moving to Michigan, there was no university anywhere near me. And I began to have kids. So in 10 years, I had six children. And um, we moved farther north to Dearborn as Randy went to world headquarters. And when my sixth child was born, I was called to be an early morning seminary teacher. And that probably was the turning point uh, in my life in terms of scripture study, because I had to do it every day to be prepared to teach those kids every day. And it was an interesting time to be teaching seminary. My second or third year, it was the year we were doing church history and uh, the Salamander letter uh, came out and all of the other forgeries and we needed to integrate some of these ideas and explain into our understanding of Mormon history and explain it to our students who had questions. 
So um, it, it wasn't easy back then to do a lot of research because the internet wasn't available. And I was living in Michigan where they didn't have a good library of Mormon books. Um, so every time that I would come home to Utah on vacation in the summers, I would go to the library and check things out and go to the church history library back when it was in the church office building. And thankfully, my kids would play with grandma while I would be going and doing research in the library in the summer. Um, it, it, I guess I just had an, uh, an, an insatiable thirst to know what was true and what the facts were. And then we moved. We moved to Ohio. Um, my husband wanted to be in an assembly plant instead of doing theoretical um, engineering. And so we moved to Amherst, Ohio, and realized that that was the town that Partly P. Pratt settled in um, when he was a very young man. And we got the autobiography of Parley P. Pratt and started reading it and were absolutely fascinated, not only with the story that he tells, which is quite funny. Uh, he's got a great sense of humor, uh, but also with the fact that we were living where these events happened. And so I began doing research to find out where exactly different members of the church had lived in northeastern Ohio and connected with Carl Anderson, who is known as Mr. Kirtland. And uh, he shared his research with me as I was researching all of the Latter-day Saints who lived in Lorain County, Ohio. And uh, that included a whole roster of interesting people, um, including Joel Hills Johnson, who wrote High on a Mountaintop, uh, Amanda Barnes-Smith, whose husband and son were killed at Hans Mill, uh, and learning their stories, traveling around to their homes in Lorain County, just, they became real and they became personal friends of mine. And so I began doing church history research as well as um, looking at scripture. So I, um, for, for many years, I would pile people into my Ford van, and we had a 15-passenger van, and take them on church history tours around in northeastern Ohio, and um, met some amazing people, every set of missionaries, and we had eight missionaries in our, in our ward, if you can imagine, four companionships in one ward, um, and I would take them on P-Days to see where all of these incredible church history events happened. Um, and so that the restoration of the gospel became very real um, to me by living where it happened. Um, I was eventually called again to be a seminary teacher and taught most of my own kids in seminary. We would meet at 5 a.m., which meant that some of those kids in the class were getting up at 4 
and driving 45 minutes to seminary. So if they're going to put in that kind of time and effort at that hour of the morning, I wanted them to um, um, get something worth their time. And so I would, I'm, I'm sure I over-prepared, um, but loved it, just loved it. And uh, did that until my youngest graduated. And at that point, I was thinking, what could I do with this now that I'm an empty nester? And um, I had never finished my college degree. So I went back and got an associate's degree at a local community college and then transferred to Oberlin College, which was five miles from my home. And Oberlin is a very interesting place. Uh, although today it's it's very liberal, it's known as the Berkeley of the East. Uh, when it was founded in the 1830s, it was to prepare uh, Christian ministers to go as missionaries to the American Indians. Well, that's exactly what Parley P. Pratt did, right? He was one of the four Lamanite missionaries. And so this theme uh, was repeating. And I ended up getting a degree in Judaic Near Eastern Studies and uh, Comparative Religion. I had fallen in love with the Old Testament in teaching it in seminary and decided I wanted to be able to read it in the original Hebrew. So I, I started taking Hebrew courses at Oberlin and the first year was great, had a great teacher. His name was Guy Haskell. The only problem was it was modern Hebrew rather than biblical Hebrew. Yeah, I was going to and, ask you. I was going to ask you if it was um, biblical or modern. Yeah, so he was teaching modern, uh, but of course the the alphabet is the same and the roots of the words are the same. The heart of Hebrew uh, has not changed. The grammar has changed. When they recreated the modern Hebrew language in the early 1900s. They took Arabic, which is a related language, um, has the same roots, uh, and took the modern grammar to get all the different verb tenses that don't exist in the biblical Hebrew. Um, but the the words, your vocabulary is going to be uh, a, a lot the same. Um, and But the second year, uh, they had fired my professor, that was a real sad story on, in itself, but hired a new guy who had just graduated with his degree. He was an Italian and I couldn't understand his English, let alone understand his Hebrew. And I went home and said, this is not gonna work. I mean, if I can't understand him, how am I going to learn? So I went to him and said, um, I really don't need modern Hebrew. What I need is biblical Hebrew so that I can do translation. And Oberlin College is small enough that the professors will teach you one-on-one -on -one if there is a course that you need that 
they don't offer in the catalog. And so he said, okay, we'll do biblical translation. And the next time he was in New York, he picked up books for me to use because they weren't available. I mean, there was no Amazon at the time. Um, and he picked up the books that I would need to do a good translation. And we would begin, I, he would assign me a, a passage to translate, and then I would come in and tell him what I had had done with it and justify my translation and we did that for a full year uh, it was uh, amazing at the same time the professor who was supposed to teach old testament studies michael white um, finally got back on campus and was made department chair and dropped all his old testament courses because they were the ones that had the least number of students in them and I went to him and said, I'm sorry, Dr. White, I need Old Testament coursework. Uh, and he looked at, at what I had taken and said, oh, you're right. Okay, um, we'll meet two days a week. And on a Thursday, he would assign me a book. I would read that book over the weekend and be prepared on Tuesday to come in and talk about it. And of course, you couldn't fake it, it's just you and the professor. But uh, he had me reading apocalyptic literature, that's stuff like the book of Daniel, uh, the book of Enoch, other intertestamental uh, apocryphal writings. It was fascinating. Um, and we also did uh, a lot with the prophets in the Old Testament. Yeah. It was phenomenal. To say the no, I would say you really had a great um, a great education and learning to do the research. Um, you don't know this, but I lived in Israel for four years, so I'm familiar with the, the oh, modern wow. Hebrew, but um, <clears throat> it's the biblical Hebrew. Um, the verb tenses are, are, are definitely different, yeah. but um, I've studied what I can of the biblical Hebrew on my own. Um, and so how has all of this helped you as far as studying your scriptures? Well, it's given me the tools to return to the original language, at least with the Old Testament. Um, and then that informs the New Testament because we have the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Old Testament, or the correct term would be Tanakh, uh, which is actually an acronym like SCUBA. Um, which is self-contained underwater breathing device, right? But in uh, the Hebrew, Tanakh stands for Torah, V'nevi'im uh, V'ketuvim, which is the law, the prophets, and the writings. And uh, that's what it's called in the New Testament. Jesus will say, say in Luke 24, uh, what does it say concerning me and the law and the prophets? Which is how they would refer to their scriptures. So, um, in a couple of hundred years before the time of Christ, the Jews realized that no one could read the Hebrew anymore. During the Babylonian captivity, most Jews lost the ability to speak and read Hebrew. They came back speaking Aramaic instead. Um, and you actually see the Aramaic creeping in in books like Malachi and Ezekiel and the later prophets. Um, but 
with that change in language, they lost the ability to read the original. And so they, they decided they would translate the Tanakh, the Old Testament, into Greek, which was then the lingua franca of the world because of, of um, Alexander the Great, who had conquered and imposed Greek civilization on the entire Mediterranean world. And um, so we know what Greek words the Jews chose to translate Hebrew words even before Christianity came along. And so you can go back to the, when you go to the New Testament, you can then say, okay, where were those same words used in the Old Testament? Who are they quoting from? What is the, the meaning, the deeper meaning of the Hebrew behind the, the Greek? And then I realized you can do that not quite as easily in, with the New Testament, but with the Book of Mormon. Because it too was originally written in Hebrew. I my understanding is that it was Hebrew words written in a Reformed Egyptian text. And that was done simply for data compression purposes. That the Reformed Egyptian actually took less space on the plates than Hebrew would have. Now, that is, that's really saying something because Hebrew takes only two-fifths of the amount of space that English takes to say the same thing. And so if Reformed Egyptian is even more compressed and concise, wow, that's, that's interesting. So I, I found it fascinating. Uh, so when I was teaching seminary, I, would, uh, I went to the church history library uh, and decided I would get the scripture mastery verses in the Book of Mormon uh, as the church had translated them into Hebrew. Because years and years ago, someone, they had a couple of people who did a, a Hebrew translation of the Book of Mormon. And in order to get that translation, you had to give them your driver's license and sit in a room with glass walls with paper and a pencil and nothing else. And then they would let you look at that uh, translation, but you had to tell what it was for. And so I started translating some uh, of the, the Book of Mormon back into the Hebrew that probably it, it originally was in. And images and ideas just began opening up as they had in the Old Testament. Being able to go back to the original language gets you past so many problems that translation causes that most people don't even recognize there's a problem there. Um, and, and probably the easiest way to talk about the problem with translation is the theology of the person doing the translation is going to affect what words they choose to use in a translation. And it's, it's almost unconscious. You don't realize that you're letting your theology change what the original author meant. And so when people sit in class and argue about commas and periods and 
capitalizations, none of which are in the original text. I just kind of get a little frustrated with that. Let's let's try to go back, like like Royal Skousen has done, finding what was the original text that Joseph Smith wrote down before the printer got hold of it and before any editing was done. So the original text, much closer to what the author. Yes, Monster, um, interpreting, I, I'm an interpreter and interpreting yeah. is not a science, it's an art. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's just, it's not only your theological view, since we're talking about scripture, but just your moral views and the way you grew up, how you how you take a word and and translate that into something else. And so uh, it's it's very, very tricky. And um, it, it is so easy, and I can see over time how um, as copies were made of copies of copies that people just, I don't think they necessarily meant to do harm, but uh, meanings change. And I, I think some did want to change things and they did it on purpose, but a lot of it is just human nature. And uh, I, it takes me back to the Tower of Babel. The Lord knew what he was doing by by bringing in these various languages. Um, it it, it, it it greatly complicates things, and so I, I I really understand what you're you're talking about now. Um, I was told that you use the Blue Letter Bible. Is that true? Yes. Um, I I of course was doing this long before Blue Letter Bible came online because when I started doing Hebrew translation, there were only three nodes on the internet, right? Um, I think University of Michigan and somebody in Texas and and University of Utah were some of the original uh, universities that created the the internet. And um, so the books that I was using are the very books that end up being used in the Blue Letter Bible. I like Blue Letter Bible because it has a function that I have found is the most important for me uh, that many other search engines don't have. And um, first of all, it gives you the, when you when you type in any word that you're searching for. So for example, um, house. Um, the very first time the word house shows up in the biblical text is when Noah and all his house entered the ark. So that tells you immediately that house does not mean a building, right? He didn't mm -hmm. haul a mobile home onto the ark. The house that he took onto the ark was his family. And that, of course, is continued through the whole book of scripture. The house of Israel is not a building. It's the family. Uh, but that word um, house is part, it, it comes from the verb that means to build, which is the verb bana. And that word gets used so many interesting ways. It's the root behind the word eben, which uh, means stone. And of course, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. 
um, the rock upon which we are to build. See, that's that's a Hebrew play on words. Um, because I don't think it was really rock. It's the stone upon which we are to build. Uh, the eben uh, that you bana. And the feminine form of that verb is beth. And that's the word for house. And you'll see that word in, say, the name of the place where uh, Jacob took a rock, a stone, and used it for his pillow and had a dream of heaven and the angels ascending and descending, which Joseph Smith tells us he had a vision of the temple. Uh, and that place is called Bethel or house of God. Uh, but Beth is also the Hebrew word for daughter. Ben is son, which comes from Bana. Uh, ben, like Ben-Hur, means son of her. So Ben is son, Beth is daughter. Well, if the word for house and daughter are the same word, how do you know how to translate it? Is the name of that place house of God or daughter of God? And so it's all context. You have to figure out what is that word meaning in this particular place? Um, one place that you'll see that word is in Exodus chapter one, uh, where the midwives uh, were told to kill all the babies by Pharaoh. All the, all the Israelite babies. But they didn't do that. They hid the, the births from Pharaoh and said, no, the Israelite women, they have their babies so quickly, they already have them before we get there. That, they, Pharaoh could have killed them over that had he realized that they were colluding with the Israelite women. Um, but there's this wonderful verse where uh, God rewards them for those actions. It's Exodus 121. It came to pass that when the that because the midwives feared God, he made them houses. And that's one of the verses that I had to translate for my professor was Exodus chapter one. Um, and so I said, you know, what you want what has to come through here is not that he built them a house like a uh, Georgian or two-story or a split level. He gave them children. To build up your house means to have children. So Sarah, when she gives Hagar to um, Abram, she says that I may be built up in her, that I may have children by means of her. So the name of the temple is Bethel, the house of God. But that's also the name for his daughters. And I think that because I am a woman, I notice things in translation, words that have a particular meaning to me, having had six children, I read these verses very differently than maybe a male translator would. Well, and that's just what we were talking about. 
Um, yeah. Uh, that you're looking at it from a female standpoint rather than a masculine, and that affects uh, translation. Now, how do you, as far as studying the scriptures on a daily basis, what, how do you normally approach it? What, what do you do? Most of my scripture study is uh, done one of two ways. Um, one is in preparing to teach. So for, for years, I did that for seminary. Then I started teaching institute classes, sometimes had five different institute classes a week that I was teaching. Since I moved here to Utah, I've been doing it through BYU Continuing Education and teach at various stake centers. Um, right now, that's all on hold because of, of COVID. Um, but preparing to teach others is probably the, the most important way that I do scripture study. And what is fascinating about it is that I can put in maybe 25 hours of studying to teach a one and a half hour class and still not spend as much time as I would have wanted. Um, it it becomes almost compulsive <laughs> uh, in in the interest and fascination that I'm I'm getting out of the scriptures. Um, so preparing to teach, and then um, I like to read other people's interpretations of things. Um, so, for example. For example, I just read a paper by Matthew Bowen. It's called That Which They Most Desired, The Waters of Mormon uh, Baptism, the Love of God, and the Bitter Fountain, something like that. Um, but I noticed as I was reading this paper that there were hundreds of references of scripture that he was referring to that had meanings to women that would be very different from how they were translated and understood by men. And so I go through that paper and note a different reading. Um, and so for example, let me give you one. I was reading, well, this actually um, was something that the Lord just gave me. I had prepared and taught a class to a group of um, single adults, and I had, I guess I had a whole box full of books and a ma massive handout for them and was real excited to teach them, and got there and realized within minutes that almost no one in the class was anywhere near ready to hear what I had prepared. They just were not capable at that point had not done sufficient scripture study themselves to be able to go where I had hoped to take them. And so as I was driving home from that, I'm talking to God, kind of like Tevye does, and said, okay, what was that all about? Why on earth did I put in so much time uh, for that particular group when they were not the spirits that I couldn't teach that, what I had prepared? And 
I got a response that was something like, oh, you want to be paid. You you want to have uh, your you want this to be worthwhile, your time and effort. Uh, OK, pull over. So I was on the freeway. I'm driving home from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and so I exited the freeway and pulled over onto a side street, got out my paper and pencil. And the Lord took me to Alma 32. And as I read about planting the seed, I realized, you know, I've always heard it interpreted and everyone else interprets it as an agricultural metaphor. And yet it also works maybe even more beautifully as uh, the story of pregnancy. And a woman having a seed planted in her and it begins to swell and her understanding is enlarged and these words have double meanings. Um, we all understand that the important thing about the covenant and the, the land and seed, right? The great Abrahamic blessings. But land and seed gets used not only with literal land, literal seeds that get planted in it, but also women as the good earth and the planting of seed, becoming pregnant, having children. Uh, I love the parallel with Adam and Eve. The first thing they do when they leave the garden is they labor together in the fields. She helps him with planting. And then uh, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore him a son. And so that you have these parallels of, of their mutual responsibilities as they leave the garden. And it's the same language. Uh, both of them have land and seed. But if you understand that, that the Hebrew word for bone uh, also is the word for lumber or wood, that etz, which is tree, um, is part of that word, etzab, that the, the, the the metaphor behind the word for bones or skeleton is that you have a tree inside of you. That when Adam, when God opened up his side and took out a rib, it's not, that, that word is never translated as rib anywhere else. I see him taking a piece of wood from Adam's tree and building. Adam was made which is asa in Hebrew. Eve was built, bana. And she's the house that is built out of that wood and the temple is built of wood. Um, and so as, as you plant that seed and nourish it and don't cast it out, that would be don't abort it, it grows into a tree of life. And the fruit thereof is most sweet. And you talk to any woman who's had children and nothing is more important to them than their kids. And mm -hmm. the focus on that. So because of my life experience, because of 
who I am. I read the text in a way that is individualized, and that's how the spirit draws things out of the scriptures for me. It fascinates me how the spirit is able to take the same verses and teach five different people five different lessons based on their own personal life experiences. Yes, and that is the, I think, a great point, because that's what the scriptures are about, is taking them and internalizing them so that it becomes something meaningful to that individual. It's not just a matter of reading, but internalizing them so that we can grasp the gospel and how to apply the principles in our life to become more Christ-like. Well, Rebecca, I've really appreciated the time with you. We're running out of time here, and um, I've found it very fascinating, and um, uh, I kind of envy you with your um, um, understanding of Hebrew, uh, because I, I languages are very, very important. And um, I just um, really enjoyed listening to you. Uh, I always ask those who I interview if they would mind ending with their testimony. Would you be able to do that? Sure. Um, let me just mention one thing uh, first, and that is my, my stake had me teach a class, and that uh, class is, was recorded and is on the stake website. And I teach people there how to use Blue Letter Bible um, to do scripture study. And it's a, it's a video. There are 10 classes. People might find them helpful um, for their own personal scripture study. And um, they would go to SalemZion.org, which is our stake website, and look for the um, resources tab. And then one of the resources is Adult Institute class. And that's well, I, where the class is. I will put that in the uh, program notes, so I'll make sure that that gets in. Thank you. That would be awesome. Um, for me, Scripture Study centers on and takes me back always to Jesus Christ. And my Hebrew study has opened up the Old Testament and the Book of Mormon and the New Testament to understanding Jesus Christ more than reading books about him. Um, truly, the scriptures testify of him. And in the original language, it is so much more beautiful, and the metaphors are so powerful. Uh, just knowing that his name, Jesus, uh, Yeshua, in the Hebrew, means Savior. And Christ is the Greek Christos, which translates Mashiach or Messiah. He is the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Um, he wants us to take his name upon us. And I think that studying his names in Hebrew and what the name means in Hebrew 
in the sense of everyone's name has meanings. How do I take that name upon myself? How do I act as a savior? Because I have been anointed. That leads you to Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 where the verse that Jesus quoted in announcing that he was the Messiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Well, each of us can say that having been given the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, uh, to bind up the brokenhearted, uh, to deliver the captives. That's who we're supposed to be as we take his name upon us. Um, And the more that you read of Christ in both the Old and the New Testaments and in the Doctrine and Covenants and in the Book of Mormon, the more you realize that it's not about worrying about details and keeping obscure little commandments. The gospel is about helping the poor. My husband and I were called to serve a mission serving the refugees in Europe. And the response of the members there was phenomenal. And everyone realized that this is what it's all about, helping the strangers in the land and the fatherless and the widows. Pure religion is to take his name upon us and do what he would do. And we find that what he would do by reading about him in scripture. So I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.